Yes, indeed, it's your hour of power this Monday, the 7th of February. I'm Alec Hogg, and we're going to be hearing a great deal tonight from my colleague Michael Apple. He has an interview with Khaleb Kachalia, the DA's Shadow Minister of Public Enterprises, on what's contained in the latest uh, Zondo report. He'll also be taking a deep dive into what went on at Transnet. Also in tonight's program, we hear from Linda von Tilburg, our UK correspondent, who speaks with Nalene Strauss. And then Andre Salir of Treasury One will tell us whither the rand. Closing off tonight's program with our partners in London, the Financial Times, with the news briefing. But first, here's the day's markets. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. The Judicial Service Commission has recommended that Judge Mandisa Meyer be appointed as the next Chief Justice of South Africa. The ball is now in the court of President Cyril Ramaphosa to make a decision based on the recommendation. Should Meyer be appointed, it will mark the first time a woman has served as Chief Justice in the country. Judge Meyer has several changes in mind, including the possible expansion of the Concord to handle the increasing number of cases before it. She also sees value in reducing the quorum of sitting judges from 8 to 7 to allow the Concord to effectively double its output, as two cases could then be heard at once. South Africa's government departments and state-owned companies have again left the Auditor General with a mess unable to audit 2.14 billion rand worth of contracts due to missing information. Of 15 SOEs that were audited, only one received a clean audit. Irregular expenditure reported in the financial statements increased to almost 167 billion rand and high levels of fruitless and wasteful expenditure continue with 224 audities losing a total of 1.72 billion rand in the current year. Wayne Duvenage, CEO of the Organisation of Undoing Tax Abuse and a panellist on the discussion of the audit outcomes, said the Auditor General South Africa report reads like a horror story. The Department of Health says that calls to end South Africa's lockdown restrictions are premature, especially given the risk of a fifth wave of COVID-19, which is expected to hit the country in the coming winter months. There have been calls from provincial governments to get rid of the state of emergency and lockdown restrictions, However, the National Health Department said it would take advice from scientists on the matter. Notably, multiple scientists and health experts have recommended that the lockdown restrictions be removed. Now to my colleague Justin Roy Roberts for the market report. The JSE All Share Index was up at 75,800. In the price action, strong day for the miners with Tungela, Impala and Angloplatz all well up. On the downside, real estate investment trusts, Equitus and Hyprop were lower, and the JLTech crypto basket is up 2% on the day. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 15 rand 47 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 90 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 70 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,815 an ounce. A Kruger rand will put you back approximately 29,500 rand. Brent crude is trading at $93.20 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency Bitcoin will put you back 660,000 Rand. 
In the financial news, fishing group Oceana has suspended CFO Harsha Karim on a precautionary basis pending a further process. The group did not go into details in a statement on Monday, but has delayed the release of financial results for 2021 after instituting a probe into the accounting treatment of matters pertaining to Daybrook, a U.S. subsidiary of the group, after a whistleblower raised concerns. Valued at around 7.7 billion rand on the JSC, the group, which ordinarily publishes its results towards end November, first flagged possible delays to the results in October. Oceana appointed ENS Africa to undertake a comprehensive independent investigation and a process review of all concerns raised by the whistleblowers. In January, Oceana said that the investigation had been concluded. No evidence of fraud, misappropriation or loss of funds or management override of controls arising from any of these matters raised had been found. The probe had, however, flagged conflicts of interest arising from relationships within the workplace as well as matters that relate to management style, culture, and the governance of a reporting and managing conflicts in certain areas within the organization. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Khaleb Kachalia, the DA Shadow Minister of Public Enterprises, uh, thank you for joining me to discuss Part one of the second report that's come out of the state capture inquiry focusing on Transnet. I'll admit there aren't enough hours in the day to have gone through both Transnet and Denel, so just look at Transnet for today. Have you had an opportunity to read that report broadly? Do you concur with the uh, the inquiry chairperson's finding that uh, convincingly it was established state capture took part of Transnet? I have... Uh scanned it, I think, would be uh, correct to say. And where my interest was piqued, I I delved into it. To answer your question, uh, I think Zondo says in summation that a systematic capture uh, uh, scheme aimed at securing illegal and corrupt control of the decision-making took place. And I think I concur with that, given the evidence that was presented uh, with that uh, broad conclusion. The individuals singled out, it's Brian Malefe, Anoj Singh, Siabonga Gama, these gentlemen all identified as, quote, the architects and implementers, close quote, of state capture transnet. Two out of the three, Mr. Malefe and Mr. Singh, would go on to ply their trade at ESCOM. Um, now, we know that the, the tally of looting at, at Transnet is over 40 billion rand. That went to the benefit of the Guptas. Do you think that that's a drop in the ocean compared to what they were able to pull off at ESCOM? Well, that's the next chapter, as it were, that will come out. And I think it's going to be uh, certainly as eye-wateringly big, if not more. Uh, uh, now, the you know, my, my take on all this is, yes, I've read it. I've, uh, it's not necessarily news to me. The detail of the, of the evidentiary declarations is new uh, and, and revealing. But this work is a, was done, was informed rather 
by considerable work that was done by investigatory journalists uh, in the past. Uh, and if you take the sum total of the of the of the evidence uh, from the investigations that journalists have made into this, plus the evidence that Zondo details in his report and the addition in the footnotes of the various bundles of evidentiary material which are made available. It is a significant body of evidence which points to eye-watering and systematic uh, looting that took place over a period of time at the behest of certain people in government and through the agency of certain people, some of the names you've mentioned, but there are many others uh, who have been uh, involved uh, in one way, shape or form. And it is, uh, the point is that this now exists. Now, what is to be done with this is the question. Uh, and we have been told that there's be, the NPA has put together a 15-person team to deal with uh, various uh, uh, aspects of this and to effect prosecutions. The problem is, how is this team going to be A, resourced? B, what powers will they have? And then, how is this going to be taken forward? Now, in order to resource a team of this, of this kind properly, it has to be funded. There has to be security in place for this team. And then this team needs, it can't, I don't know how they operate because I'm not privy to that, but it can't be the ad hoc workings of various people plowing through this uh, this documentation. Uh, it, you know, I, I don't want to prescribe or teach grandmother how to suck eggs, but there needs to be a matrix uh, there needs to be a, a mapping of what went on uh, that identifies evidentiary strengths and gaps uh, in, in the process. And that has to be then cross-referenced uh, against uh, potential prosecutory transgressions. Uh, and it has to have support at the highest level as well as resourcing and funding. If that takes place, and it needs to take place, then we may have something to go for, go forward with. Otherwise, it will be the continual drip of prosecutions here and there, which there not be many, and uh, it would result in this, ex these expensive commissions being a waste of money. Well, I want to speak about some of the characters who have been arrested uh, and are out on bail. People like Iqbal Sharma, who who headed up uh, one of the subcommittees uh, of the board at Transnet. Uh, Kuben Mudli, who ran a company called Albertime, he got arrested at the airport uh, looking to, on his version of events, go play golf in Dubai. Uh, I wonder who his golfing partners were. Um, now, those are just two. There are several names. Uh, Molefe Singh Gama Malusi Gigaba, 
um, the Deputy Chief Justice, in his capacity as the inquiry chair, says, look, it's the NPA needs to to look at the possibility of corruption and racketeering charges against them. But uh, the NPA is the end point. The starting point is law enforcement. And as you as you point out, how these how is law enforcement going to be resourced? Because the majority of these crimes took place eight, nine, 10, 11 years ago. Do we need to be realistic about the prospects of successful prosecutions here? Maybe temper our expectations as the public. Uh, I don't know is the answer. I mean, I think we need to be rigorous and we need to, uh, and the authorities who are looking at this need to take a view as to what is prosecutable and what would potentially result in success. There, there are a host of people, as you say. It goes beyond uh, the usual suspects. It, go, it you know, Jeff Radebe, Sipiwe Nyanda, uh, Sia Gama, uh, Salim Essa. The list goes on and on and on beyond beyond the Iqbal Sharmas and the Brian Molifes. There's Lynn Brown, uh, who needs to be held to account in in in, in no uh, uncertain terms. Now. Uh, you know, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, and I don't know how this can be uh, bundled together in a racketeering, uh, money laundering, and fraud charge. Racketeering, as I understand it, is not part and parcel necessarily of our of our legal prosecution environment. But there is a case to be made uh, for collusion. Uh, if I choose to use that word, and if the if there is a case to be made for collusion that speaks to racketeering, money laundering, fraud, and theft, not to put too fine a point on it, then uh, uh, then then in that collusionary bundle, there may be merit. In, in taking it in taking it forward but as I say I'm not a lawyer these people have to have to have to look at this and and come up with a with with something that that holds and that that, that the public can look at and say well thank God something's being done apart from that there needs to be measures put in place to ensure that this doesn't continue because you know in both escom and transnet, the procurement regime still holds. The command and control mechanisms that uh, the current government is so fond of and the current ministry is so fond of putting in place is largely responsible for the, the shield under which all of this operated hitherto. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. The third Biz News Conference at the magnificent Champagne Sports Resort in the Drakensberg will be held from the 1st to the 4th of March. It's lining up to be the best so far. We've got a strong lineup of speakers. A single delegate cost is 7750 For couples, it's 12950 Book your seat by going onto the Business Investment Conference button on the right-hand side of the biznews.com homepage. See you there. Hi, I'm Michael Apple. I've been combing through much of the second report coming out of the state capture inquiry 
so that you don't have to. It's complicated, infuriating and so detailed that I hope this provides you with a digestible snapshot of the feeding frenzy that went on at Transnet with the taxpayers' money. If you find the narration of this article useful and interesting, please do let us know. Alright, let's get into it. The much-awaited second tranche of findings coming out of the state capture inquiry is blunt about the extent to which Transnet was sucked dry to the tune of at least 41.2 billion rand by the Guptas and their cronies. This is just what could be counted within a single state-owned entity. The grand quantum is definitely more, as Zondo's last report is sure to confirm at the end of February. As a starting point, the report makes an interesting comment. State capture Transnet began with the resignation of Maria Ramos as GCEO of Transnet in 2009 and the election of Jacob Zuma as President of the Republic. The report, however, focuses mainly on the period between 2011 and 2018. The systematic scheme of securing illicit and corrupt influence or control over the decision-making at Transnet was helped along by an interesting cast of characters South Africans should be familiar with by now. Group Chief Executive Brian Molefe, Group Chief Financial Officer Anoj Singh, and Chief Executive of Transnet Freight Rail Siabonga Gama. These guys became household names. Molefe, in particular, tried to get us to drink the Kool-Aid about there being a Saxonwald Shabin he was possibly frequenting. Said in jest or not, he has never offered any better reason for regularly cruising in that neighborhood. It would be unkind to call Malefe a guest at the Gupta's compound. The man was practically part of the furniture. It is estimated he visited the palatial corruption HQ as many as 50 times in the four years he was chief executive at Transnet. These three Gupta stooges are named in the report as being the primary architects and implementers of unconstrained looting at Transnet. The report states Molefe Singengama facilitated the conclusion of irregular contracts at inflated prices, variously through deviations, improper confinements, and the changing of tender evaluation criteria in order to facilitate entry for companies involved in the extensive money laundering scheme directed by Salim Essa on behalf of the Gupta Enterprise. There is, of course, another head honcho one cannot leave out, Malusi Gigaba. He was the Minister of Public Enterprises from November 2010 until May 2014. Gigaba, together with Molefe and Singh, were found to be regular visitors to the Gupta compound in Saxonwold, from where the corrupt enterprise operated in South Africa. It also found that Gigaba, who initially tried to downplay his relationship with the infamous family, had in fact been quite close with them since the early 2000s, when he was the ANC Youth League president. Gigaba was one of the many ANC faithfuls who attended the Gupta's audaciously extravagant Sun City wedding that was allegedly paid for with siphoned Astina dairy money laundered via the UAE. On 8 December 2010, Cabinet approved a new Transnet board. Sitting on this board was one Iqbal Sharma, 
a wealthy Johannesburg businessman. Guess who he was friends with? Gigaba had initially recommended Sharma be chairperson of the board, but Cabinet, surprisingly mind you, turned that recommendation down. The reason Cabinet gave was Sharma's inexperience and secondly fears that he may be closely identified with the wealthy Gupta family. Molefe's appointment to Transnet as Group Chief Executive in 2011 coincided with a key change in operations. Let's call it the centralization of power in key individuals and the board. Before 2011, the board of Transnet never got involved in procurement matters. But it wasn't long before a new subcommittee of the board was established in February 2011 called the Board Acquisitions and Disposals Committee, the BADC. Despite Sharma's proximity to the Guptas, he was appointed as the chairperson of the BADC in August 2012. It was a very powerful position. Under the 2011 Delegation of Authority framework, the BADC had the power to approve and conclude tenders in excess of 500 million rand. In April 2012, Transnet embarked on its Market Demand Strategy, the MDS, aimed at pumping 300 billion rand into Transnet's five divisions in a counter-cyclical investment that the entity hoped would bear fruit when demand in rail, ports and pipeline infrastructure peaked in the coming years. The report notes that the BADC's authority and procurement powers very closely tracked the upscaling of investments into the market demand strategy, with its tender approval authority increasing fourfold to 2 billion rand. By 2016, the BADC's authority had been extended once again to be able to adjudicate on bids with a further expansion of its approval authority to 3 billion rand. The increase in authority worked to the benefit of the Gupta enterprise. The evidence shows that many of the irregularities between 2011 and 2017 took place within the BADC or at the insistence of the Group Chief Executive Brian Malefe and the Chief Financial Officer Anoj Singh, the report notes. When Transnet embarked on its multi-billion rand procurement of locomotives between 2012 and 2017, instead of relying on its internal staff complement of 40 experts, it hired, at enormous cost, financial advisors with links to the Gupta enterprise, despite all of the requisite skills residing in-house. It is worth pointing out that Sharma was a business associate of Gupta Lieutenant Salim Essa, who, besides being a backroom fixer of sorts, co-founded Trillion Capital along with Eric Wood. Essa also earned over 20% in fees from Transnet through so-called Business Development Service Agreements, or kickbacks, for doing nothing. In one deal focused on raising capital for Transnet's locomotives procurement, Trillion invoiced the SOE to the tune of 93 million rand for so-called transaction advisory work, already done and invoiced by another Gupta Link company, Regiments Capital. In effect, this was just double dipping. Regiments was paid 189 million rand success fee 
for arranging a $1.5 billion loan through the China Development Bank. Regiments then paid 147 million rand to Albertime, a company owned by Gupta fixer Kuben Mudli, who then paid 122 million rand to Sahara Computers, naturally owned directly by the Guptas. Ultimately, under Malefe's watch, the Gupta enterprise received more than 3.5 billion rand in proven kickbacks in respect of the locomotives procured, says the report. Molefe, as group chief executive, also had a handy spending ace up his sleeve. He, and he alone, was able to approve 1 billion rand tenders on the basis of something called confidential confinements. Now, confinements are a deviation from the generally open and transparent tender process permitted only in instances of urgency, limited supply or standardization. Continually using confinements was a very convenient way around having to publicize tenders. In fact, the report finds that Malefe had confinement tenders go straight from the CEO of a division directly to his office for approval without any prior review. This happened with the substantial tenders awarded to McKinsey and Gupta-linked regiments for financial advisory services where substantial fees were laundered to the Gupta enterprise. The Group Governance Division of Transnet was said to be concerned about the expanding delegation of authority to the BADC and executives, as it allowed individuals to act as an acquisition council, when what was actually needed was oversight by the finance, legal, compliance and tax divisions of Transnet. But alas, procurement recommendations were given directly to the board to approve, rather than benefiting from internal review and scrutiny, much like what we know to have unfolded at the South African Revenue Service when consultancy firm Bain & Co. was appointed there in January 2015. High-value procurement decisions by the Transnet board were often uninformed or made based on advice received from external advisors and consultants. Based on the testimony presented by witnesses and the paper trail gathered by the state capture inquiries investigators, Chairperson Raymond Zondo says, the evidence establishes convincingly that state capture occurred at Transnet in the period between 2009 and 2018. He recommends law enforcement agencies further investigate Molefe, Singh, Gigaba, Gama, Essa, Wood and others on charges of corruption and racketeering. Many of the above-mentioned gentlemen are also alleged to have received regular cash payments during their visits to the Gupta's compound. Commissions of inquiry are inquisitorial proceedings that make findings. Those findings are not binding on anyone or anything. Think of them as suggestions for what should happen next. The South African taxpayer faces the prospect of over a very long period of time, having some of these prima facie findings tested in a court of law through an adversarial process. And that's only if our law enforcement agencies can actually provide prosecutors with a docket presenting evidence that yields a reasonable prospect of success. Facing those prosecutors will be the very best defense team's money, genuinely earned or ill-gotten, can buy. There will be no quick victories, as the master of avoiding his day in court, Jacob Zuma, has taught us.
providing a blueprint for all who find themselves in his shoes. Thanks for listening. On the banks of the Thames River in London, there's a well-known restaurant among the business sector of the area called High Timber. The owner and manager is Nadine Strauss, originally from Bloemfontein, who have managed to survive the lockdowns in London despite a growing list of restaurants that have closed down. It includes giants like the Café de Paris that achieved notoriety for staying open at the start of the First World War. Gutsy and with the freedom of the City of London award under her arm, Nalene is ready to set off as London reopens, hopefully permanently. She told business about her spat with Boris Johnson, sad Christmases and how she managed to stay afloat while others failed. Joining me now is Nalene. Hi Nalene, how do people immediately know that your restaurant is owned by a South African? It's my fantastic accent, I guess. Um, no, we've also... <laughs> We've got African art, we've got a rhino, and the rhino's got one of Faf de Klerk's Onobrookies on a bum with a South African flag. But otherwise, we're not overtly South African. And we're very friendly. I mean, South Africans are friendly. Not real Faf de Klerk undies, are they? <laughs> no, no. It's a, but he gave it to us in uh, March 2020. We had a massive rugby, rugby function, yeah? And he was, yeah, and he was very sweet, and he was dishing out undies. So everyone wanted his undies. So you know, among the business sector, how has that been going? Um, at the moment, we're very quiet because work from home doesn't work for us. We're in the square mile in the centre of London. And when Boris decided everyone's working from home, all our bookings cancelled, we went very, very quiet. But luckily, they changed the whatever the COVID rules are and work from home is no longer happening. So our bookings are coming in fast and furiously from next week, which makes us very happy going to make my bank manager happy as well. So how did it go in the past two years? How did you manage to survive? Firstly, my landlord was super kind. We've been here for 13 years now and he was just really, he didn't charge us rent when we were closed. And mm. then uh, he also charged us a percentage. I'm only paying full rent from now on. Our customers, which are the best customers in the world, bought a lot of wine during lockdown, obviously at discounted prices. Our suppliers looked after us. Everyone looked after us. There was literally our managing agents did not look after us. They put our, our service charge up from £5,000 to £15,000. I'm still fighting it. I've got the help of a lawyer. But they were really the only bad people in the whole COVID tale. So I'm, I'm very lucky. If I looked around what happened in London and how many restaurants have closed, that, that's a really good news story. But it seems that eventually now you can fully open and really get it going. Yes. Now, we were fully open. November was a fantastic month. It was really a good month. Christmas was very sad. We've had two sad Christmases in a row, which is not good for any restaurant business because you cover your January losses with your profits from Christmas. But um, I think it's looking up. I'm very, very positive. I've got a fully staffed kitchen for the first time in two years. Not fully staffed uh, front of house team yet, but I'm working on that. And yeah, I'm very positive. I think it's going to go very well later on in 2022. Nalene, you're known for having handed over a bill of £90,000 to Boris Johnson when he was mayor of London because of loss of business during the 2012 Olympics. Were you tempted to do it again during all the lockdowns? No, no. The lockdowns was not Boris's fault. 
uh, the way they run it is there. I mean, I don't blame this government or any world government massively for how they handled the pandemic. They had no hindsight. But the Olympics, when Boris's voice was on all the underground tube stations telling people not to come into London, they're going to get trampled, stay away from London. I don't think there was a work from home ethic then yet. But um, he literally told everyone to stay the hell out of London. So London became a ghost town. On a Thursday night at 11 o'clock, you could get any black cab in the history of the world because there'd be seven from that side and ten from that side, which is unheard of. So it's, it's, it's not always that good for the economy when he opens his mouth. That's my opinion. So my opinion's not a fact, by the way. So did he, did he pay up? <laughs> no, no, but it made news headlines. So I had a few accounting firms that in, send out internal emails, but basically like go and eat with Nalin because otherwise she won't stop moaning. So I was lucky. <laughs> As I said, I've got fantastic customers. Yeah, I'm sure the customers are there because, because not only because the food and the South African wine, but because of your personality. Well, how did somebody from Bloemfontein end up running a restaurant right on the Thames? Because you've got a beautiful view. Sometimes I think it's stupidity. Um, no, I mean, it's, I was sent here by Browns of Ravonia to open Viva Bacchus, which is another restaurant, which is still oh. going. And um, I wanted my own place. So the landlord showed me this venue a lot of times. We had to build it. So it was a building site and the beautiful view was um, covered with scaffolding. And every time I came to look at it, it was snowing skew outside. It was those horrible London winter days. And I didn't want the place. But every time I walked away, the rain came down. And on the fourth time, they took the scaffolding off and it was a beautiful, crystal clear, blue sky London day. And I thought to myself, what did I not see before? Yeah, I want this place. So, yeah, that's how I got iTimber. The Jordan family, Gary and Kathy, decided they want to be my business partners along uh, about a year before this. So I sent them videos of the place and they said, that looks fantastic. And um, I didn't want them as business partners because they're really good friends. They live in Sussex now, so I see them often. They're even better friends now, which is weird, but it's fantastic. Do you stock a lot of South African wines? Yeah, I've got about 25,000 bottles. I love the wine thing. I'm not the world's great. I don't know a lot about wine. I know a little bit on how to sell it. I know a little bit about South African wine. I love traveling for wine, going to different wine regions of the world. It's very interesting, and I can't wait for all this COVID restrictions to to go away. And I think it will be March so that I can go to Italy and drink a bit of Amarone in Verona with the opera. That's my thing that I'm looking second most forward to, after mm. visiting South Africa, of course. Well, how long since you've been? To South Africa? Mm. One year and seven days. <laughs> Not that you're counting. So do you stock a lot of South African wines? Yes, Stellenbosch. The majority of the wines here are from Stellenbosch and Hermanus, Swatland. I mean, there's a lot of interesting areas in South Africa that pops up every now and again. I've got wines from the Karoo, from Prisca, um, which is uh, interesting and delicious. And, uh, yeah, Elgin, Cape Town, all over the place. I've got no wines from Bloemfontein, but I think they are making it there. Are they now making wines from Bloemfontein? They should. I'm sure they do. There's some wines from the Oranje Rafi somewhere, so... Were there stages in the past two years that you battled to import from South Africa? Um, no, not really. We didn't import a lot because we were closed most of the time. And um, 
I just got my Cat Winemakers Guild shipment. That took a while to get here because of lorry drivers and Brexit and supply chain issues. But it's here now, so it's all the white things that's wrapped in white behind me are Cat Winemakers Guild. I love those <laughs> wines. Do you think this has been the last of the lockdowns? London is London. Londoners will do their thing the way we wanted, they wanted to do. They will wear masks if they want to, they won't if they don't. I think Londoners are unique. They're a bit like South Africans. They can stomach a lot, you know, they can get whacked, but they get up again. So, but I think it will be the last. We'll have to live with this thing. I think everyone should get their vaxxers and their boosters, and um, then it will become less and less. It might stay with us for our generation, but that's something we don't know, so... Have you seen a return of tourists to London? Not a lot, no. No, I walk past St. Paul's twice a day and, I mean, that's how I tell it. No, there's not a lot of tourists yet. The bit of the lockdown that I really enjoyed was I would jog from my flat to High Timber. It's, it's not that far. And um, I'd stand at the river and look at the view. And all the seagulls were missing because they're not, they don't belong here. But there were geese, low-flying geese and lots of white swans, black swans. There were two otters. And a seal. I mean, the nature just took over in, in the square mile in London. There were all these things I've never seen before. It was fantastic. I like that part. And now do, have they left? Yes, they've gone back to wherever. We've got seagulls back because they're scavengers and um, they can scavenge again. Just tell us um, the, the last story about that big mushroom in your entrance. <laughs> Why do you want the one with the police? <laughs> Yes. Um, it's, it's a street artist and um, he put it outside and we had massive winds and gale force and storms in London. So I brought it in later. But while it was still outside, I had it on the wall of the river because it so that people can see us. Uh, we, we were I mean, we it's it's quite a difficult restaurant to find. So I thought, let me put this mushroom because it will draw attention. And the river police stopped and they asked me, why have you got that thing? And they were very rude to me, and they're normally not rude. I mean, the London, London police force is really friendly, and they were agitated. And I looked at them, I said, why, what do you want to know, you know? He says, why have you got it then? I said, well, I've got it yet because my rhino feeds off it, it's to feed my rhinoceros. <laughs> and they were not happy me with me. They stripped, as uh, to put it in South African English, and they got on their radios and they called the city police and the Met police, Ooh. and I don't know why. And the city police knows me. I mean, they have coffee here when it's cold, and I've got a very good relationship with them. And they took their time to get here, and um, they said, Nalene, the river police, and they saw the fake statue of a rhino, and they both start laughing, and uh, they radioed the river police back, say there is an actual rhino, but don't worry about it. <laughs> Everything's under control. So they saw the human in it, so. And um, you have the freedom of the city of, of London. <laughs> How did you get it and what is it, what rights does it give you? The best right it gives you is uh, if I get drunk and disorderly, they have to put me in a cab and take me back home. But it's, it's, it's a lovely thing to have. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. This Currency Focus is proudly brought to you by Treasury One. South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. Andre Salias, Treasury One's currency expert. Andre, the rand relatively unchanged from when we spoke about a fortnight ago. Some rand strength before we paid those gains into last week. 
What's driving the Rand dollar price action at the moment? This is going to sound very, very boring. Inflation is driving everything. It's driving the world at the moment. Uh, and when we last spoke, uh, I think when we spoke about technical levels, we said if it breaks down below the 1520 level, we could see it lower. And if it breaks out above the 1550 level, it could go higher. Uh, and here we are, you know, around the 1553, uh, 1560 really being the top side. Uh, but it's in that spread and we're going nowhere. And if you look at it, it's been in that range now for quite some time with without any new stimulus coming out uh, other than inflation. We know that the Federal Reserve is going to hike rates this year, possibly multiple times. How many rate hikes are you expecting from the Fed this year? And as a result of your forecast, do you expect a strong or weak dollar going forward into the rest of 2022? If you look at the inflation figures that came out and you look at the last Federal Reserve meeting where they had very clearly indicated that they will actually most probably start in March already with their interest rate hikes. Since then, the dollar has actually retreated slightly. Um, and you would recall that I've also said, you know, the people want to see what happens now. They want to see this actual movement. And, and, and at the moment, they've got the Federal Reserve, I always want to say, a bit by the back end, because uh, can the Federal Reserve satisfy the markets? Uh, the only way, and I've spoken about this, is if they come out with an increase that's more than what is expected by the market. Now, we've seen... Uh, that they've moved in 25 basis point increments. If we look at what's discounted in terms of yields, uh, in terms of rates at the moment, then already a 35 to 40 basis point uh, increase is penciled in uh, and discounted for in the markets for March. Now, as we get closer to March, that's going to increase. So if the Federal Reserve only increases by 25 basis points, it will actually be a disappointment to the market. And I will definitely not think that the dollar will react positively on that. It will actually react negatively. And even then, if they do the 50 basis point move, the market will start putting them on the back end again and say, are we going to see another 50 basis point? So, no, I do not think that the dollar is in for a heck of a strengthening period because of their rates. That's the first one. The second one, why I say that, is if you look at uh, the Bank of England, they've raised last, rates last week. Inflation in the uh, Eurozone came out at record highs, uh, even though there was a disappointment in terms of retail sales over the December period. If you look at South Africa, we've already raised rates again. Uh, so the emerging market space as such, and some of the first world countries uh, around the globe, is actually starting to really look at interest rate increases as well, which puts the Federal Reserve behind the curve. Uh, and as long as they're behind the curve, that's the second reason why I say the dollar will not really strengthen. Are there any new developments in Turkey? We know the lira's importance as an emerging market currency proxy. Uh, the noise around the lira seems to have calmed somewhat this year. But what is exactly is happening down over there, Andre? Yes. Um, you know, you're not going to reveal your secrets as to what you did over the weekend. And Mr. Erdogan is not going to reveal his secrets as to what can be expected of him in the near future. Um, 
and and he's all that we do know about Mr. Erdogan is that his behavior will be erratic. Uh, it will be unpredictable. So it's very difficult to say what we can expect out of Turkey. I think Mr. Erdogan has learned over uh, the last couple of years that you know he gets slammed and hammered. Uh, with extremely volatile moves, which doesn't make his management of his currency or the management of his economy any easier. So hopefully from that lesson, he will become a little bit less erratic, uh, but not he, he, he will not lose it at all. But he will become a little bit less erratic, and that might be slightly positive for the emerging market space uh, in the sense that we could see less erratic movement because of uh, Turkey uh, going forward. Is the geopolitical risk between Russia and Ukraine impacting the currency markets at all? Yes, it's difficult to determine uh, what whether Russia will win out of this because uh, you know trying to take on the NATO countries by invading the Ukraine. Um, now I don't think we'll have a full-scale war, but uh, they will certainly, in terms of economic sanctions uh, throughout the from the first world countries towards Russia uh, will definitely impact negatively on their economy, number one. Number two, the cost of uh, uh, an invasion of the Ukraine will drain on their reserves because that's costly. Uh, so sanctions plus the cost, uh, they cannot emerge as the winner here. So uh, I doubt whether it was now mentioned this morning that the, dipl the diplomatic lines are still open for talks. So I don't think they will immediately invade, uh, but we'll have some skirmishes and we'll see that and that will have an impact uh, on what happens going forward. It will have an impact on oil prices. It will have an impact of what happens in the Middle East uh, area. Uh, so it is a, it's a volatile situation, but I don't think Russia will emerge as a winner. Now, if they don't emerge as a winner, they're part of the emerging market space. That could be a little bit negative for the emerging markets. The budget speech is taking place in around two weeks' time. How are you expecting what comes out of that day to affect the RAND? Oh, well, you're missing the SONA speech coming up this week from the city, uh, from the town council here in Cape Town, seeing that we don't have a parliament uh, with, with proper parliament buildings anymore. Um, so Mr. Ramaphosa is going to have the first opportunity of spelling out what can be expected from them. Uh, I think he can put a slight positive spin onto what can be expected out of the ANC, uh, what kind of legislation can be expected, what can happen in terms of, uh, you know, welfare, pensions and uh, grants and so forth. That will even have an impact on what the minister will tell us. Uh, but when the minister comes up and we look at tax income and so forth, then I think some of the statistics that he's going to give us in terms of uh, revenue collection and so forth is going to be positive. I think the uh, deficit uh, that we run will be a little bit smaller as percentage of GDP. Uh, I think there might be a further windfall income from the tax revenue base. Uh, that would be positive for him. Uh, but I expect him to remain firmly on track with the uh, staying on the fiscal discipline path uh, and not going for an overspending uh, and, and most probably giving us slightly more positive figures uh, that was even given to us during the medium-term budget speech. So that could be positive for the RAND 
uh, going into the budget speech and after the sauna. Commodities continue to rally and remain strong until this changes. Can we expect a strong rand or a strong rand for the foreseeable future? I think the pressure on the rand to weaken uh, substantially will be slightly on a handbrake situation with commodities at these slightly elevated levels. Uh, now, you know uh, that for a very long time, I've not been a commodity bear. Uh, I remain not to be a commodity bear. I remain on the path of demand that will still be there uh, going forward with economies coming back into growth. Uh, if inflation continues up the path that it is uh, and uh, interest rates increases substantially, uh, then we might see commodities uh, sort of leveling out a little bit and not going any further. And that would be because of demand uh, becoming a little bit slower because of higher interest rates throughout economies. But I'm still at the uh, forefront of no massive decline in uh, commodity prices aiding the rand as a commodity price, uh, currency going forward for the rest of the year. Lastly, and I know we mentioned technicals right at the beginning of the program, but just tell us about what the technicals are saying now in terms of short-term price action. I'm talking specifically rand dollar, and what are the important levels there, Andre? Fifteen sixty. It's got to break fifteen sixty if it wants to move higher. 15.20 on the bottom end. It's got to break 15.20 if it wants to go uh, to a stronger side of a 14.80 or a 14.90. If we do not break either 15.20 or the 15.60 level significantly. Now, when you speak about breaking that, no point in it going to 62 in the middle of the day and closing at 58. No point in breaking 15. 20 and going to 15.18 and closing above 15.20 at the end of the day. You have to see closes below the 15.20 and a close below 15.60 to actually see a significant break. Those remain the firm technical levels. There's smaller levels in between, uh, but I do not regard that as important. 15.20, 15.60, that's it. Stay within those ranges and that's where we will be. This currency focus was proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. Today is Monday, February 7th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Western powers are still trying to figure out how to deal with Russia. International aid agencies say all the money the West is pouring into Afghanistan won't help many people unless there are financial reforms as well. Plus, we're going to examine the UK's migrant crisis. Yeah, it's very hard. I miss everything in Afghanistan. We must come here because here is a little bit safe. In the first of our three-part series, we'll hear from refugees in northern France who are desperately waiting to find a way across the English Channel. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. There is a frenzy of diplomacy this week aimed at de-escalating tensions with Russia. French President Emmanuel Macron plans to visit his Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin today. Meanwhile, European and U.S. officials are working on a backup plan in case Russia cuts off gas to the EU. That could be Russia's response to Western sanctions if Moscow invades Ukraine. 
The FD reports that the EU could have a tough time getting all 27 member states on board with sanctions, though. The bloc relies heavily on Russia for energy, and some member states, like Italy and Austria, have especially strong business ties to Russia. Western cash is starting to flow into Afghanistan to stem a growing humanitarian crisis. But international aid agencies warn that the money won't help much without reforms that make sure the funds get to ordinary people. Aid agencies are urging Western governments to release frozen Afghan central bank reserves. They say this would restore interbank lending and foreign exchange transactions and help revive the country's banks. They also want the unblocking of donor funds locked up by the World Bank. That would help the broader economy. An estimated 3.5 million Afghans have been forced to leave their homes in order to survive. A migrant crisis is further poisoning relations between the UK and France. French President Macron recently said the UK's immigration policy encourages people to risk their lives by crossing the English Channel from France. Here's the response from Britain's Home Secretary, Priti Patel. Macron's comments are wrong. They're absolutely wrong. So let me be very, very clear about that. Patel is the face of the UK's efforts to address the crisis. British lawmakers are reaching for harsh measures to deter migrants Even though the number of refugees arriving in the UK has remained steady, the number of people coming by boat has risen dramatically. Last year, 30,000 people took the perilous journey across the channel, triple the number of the previous year. The news briefing is going to explore the UK's migrant crisis in a series of reports. We'll start in northern France. The FT's Anna Grasse went to a refugee camp near Calais to meet some of the people waiting to get to the other side of the channel. She joins me now. Hi, Anna. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. So, Anna, you went to one of these camps, and, you know, we're going to post a few of the pictures that you sent us to our Twitter account, at FT News Briefing. And these pictures, they they show, you know, red and blue tents and tarps clustered along a railway track next to a forest. For you, you know, what did you see when you were there? What was it like? Um, It's pretty chaotic. There are people milling around. There's a lot of people in a very small bit of space. Because it was so cold, there were several fires that had been made. It wasn't easy to make fire because the logs were so wet uh, from the rain. But but there would be people constantly trying to make fire. And on those fires, they'd be um, boiling milk or cooking some food that they'd um, gotten hold of. Because it had been raining so much, people's clothes and the tents themselves were, were really wet. So there were people walking around with wet shoes and clothes and didn't have any option to kind of get dry. What were some of the people like? I, I know that you met one young man from Afghanistan named Abu Bakr. Um, no, Here's some of what he told you. I lost my way. By two months, I'm here. It's very hard. I'm just alone. Yeah, it's very hard. I missed everything in Afghanistan. We had everything. We must come here because here is a little bit safe. He left his family in Afghanistan in the summer when the Taliban um, took over. And from Pakistan, he went to Iran, then to Turkey, and then finally he made it to France. There's no work, no job in France. We all know. I saw the Paris. A lot of Afghan guys from other countries, many of them, they are living on the street. So I understand you talked to quite an age of uh, age range of people there. Yeah, so this is um, a little girl that, that we met 
Her name was Diva. Very, very appropriate. <laughs> yeah, she just really wanted the mic the whole time. Um, and this girl, Diva, was really attached to this woman called Bahan. She's 28 years old uh, and from Kurdistan. Uh, but uh, there are two parties there, two political parties. They have controlled everything and everyone there. If you are not with them, maybe one day someone will come and kill you without having any reason. Uh, just like uh, one of our neighbors. So Bahan uh, said she got a visa to visit France, but she, she didn't want to stay in France. She was really keen to get to the UK. We have some, about some families there, and our English is better than <laughs> friends learning a new language is really difficult. We just want to go study there, continue our life there. So Anna, can you give me some context? You know, this number of people who are trying to get into the UK, how does this compare to numbers of refugees trying to get to other European countries? The UK receives about a third as many asylum applications as Germany per year, um, and fewer than half the number than in France. Even Spain takes more refugees than the UK. The reality is that fewer displaced people want to go to the UK, or at least manage to get to the UK. But we do tend to attract migrants from certain countries, specifically Kurdistan, um, Iraq, Iran. Yeah, Iran. Uh, so tell me a little bit about Ali, who you met at the camp and is actually from there. He's 24 and uh, he was with his father, both of them trying to get to the UK. He'd already been there for close to a month when I met him and he seemed uh, really frustrated. Cook, they gave us a small food. I used to eat three times in the day. No, I don't eat once in the day. Ali's situation was really different to, to anyone else that I'd met at the camp because he'd actually spent the last six years uh, in Denmark with his father, his mother and his sisters. Um, and they all were at a similar camp there and applied for asylum in Denmark. And while his mother and sisters were granted asylum, um, Ali and his father were denied it. Yeah, they playing with us. Six years, what the hell? Yeah, I was in near to college, go to the study. In the so Denmark rejected Ali's asylum application. Why didn't he just try for another country in the European Union? But since Brexit, the UK is no longer party to an EU law called the Dublin Regulation. That regulation allows refugees to apply for asylum in the first country deemed safe that they set foot in. Um, otherwise, they have to wait 18 months without the right to work before they can apply again. Uh, they can't apply anywhere else in the EU. So if I understand this correctly, because the UK is no longer in the EU, it means Ali can go to the UK and get a second chance at asylum? Yeah, if he goes to the UK, he can start again um, and apply for asylum immediately. So that's, that's what he's hoping for. So if these people in the camp make it to the UK, what's next for them, Anna? So once they get to UK shores, which is usually around Kent, uh, they'll likely be taken to hotels or other accommodation while their asylum application is processed. Um, that process is supposed to take uh, roughly six months. In that time, they aren't allowed to work. So they often kind of sit around um, hoping that it's successful and that they can make a new start in the UK. Anna Gross is a reporter for the FT. Thank you, Anna. Thanks a lot. 
Well, thanks for being with us today. And we look forward to being back in your company tomorrow. Same time, same place uh, from the Biz News team. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.